Welcome to What Do You Think? I'm Al. And I'm C. And on this episode, we are actually joined by a, uh, like, multiple-time listener, first-time participant. Uh, yeah. A good, a good, good friend of C's. Uh, John. John, say hi to the our podcast audience, which probably consists of you and, like, our parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, everybody. I'm John. Uh, I consider C my best friend in the world and a uh, wonderful guy to watch movies with especially our our long movie marathons which we try to do maybe once every two months give or take yeah and uh we john uh, i just want to say you have a wonderful voice for radio like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) he actually he does uh professional john does professional uh, audio work actually he has uh done commission work for some of some other people and uh it's remarkable john's voice brings legitimacy to our podcast (laughs) <laughs> why not thank john, you very much <laughs> well not even not even john's voice could save our podcast all right all right so uh so john you you consider yourself C's best friend um kind of like just a little background about yourself in terms of like your cinema habits like what brought you into the world of of being a cinephile and uh, of appreciating the art form and uh kind of what's the stuff you kind of lean towards liking you know, just basically a quick rundown of your taste, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my introduction to film was through my mother. Uh, she was a cinephile back in the 1970s because she was born in 70. Uh, so through the 70s and 80s, she was watching all kinds of uh, black and white and technicolor films, especially musicals. Um, she could rattle off all kinds of uh, famous actors that she knows about or that she likes and, you know, some of their different marriages. Um, Hmm. My earliest memories, uh, aside from, you know, her favorite films being the Star Wars trilogy, uh, which I saw back when I was three years old for the first time, uh, aside from that, my earliest memories are watching The Music Man from, I believe, 1966, uh, Sound of Music. Um, what are some others she introduced me to? An American in Paris? No. Uh, Singing in the Rain, I think, was rather early. Mm-hmm. I think I was, f- I want to say, 14 when she showed me Xanadu. Um, oh, wow. But at, after she introduced me to a handful of things when I was, oh, that's right, um, The Ten Commandments. I watched that probably when I was seven. Jeez, that is, wow, that is impressive. Um, uh, very early on, I got into uh, the TCM marathons. I think I watched the Ray Harryhausen uh, multi-day marathon when that was in, I want to say 2005. So I explored all of the Sinbad movies, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, the original Clash of the Titans, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Um, I also rented DVDs from Netflix very early, so I discovered uh, anime for the first time when I was 13, and that's when I uh, first saw the Slayers movies, which you've now seen all four of the, of the main features see. Yes, I have, and they are uh, they are remarkable in their camp and their camp comedy and uh, uh, um, 
high fantasy, I should say. Yes, they're they're all playing jokes on fantasy tropes um, mm-hmm. on top of being in, in completely insane within their own universe. Yes. In terms of my tastes, they do span pretty much everything because uh, if I have a blank space in my you know film literacy i want to fill it in uh right now i know that i'm lacking italian cinema i'm lacking hong kong cinema i'm lacking black exploitation because there's such a huge wealth of material there um and i'm lacking more black and white films which is why you and i had our our black and white movie marathon this last time because i I just haven't seen enough of them that was a really i really enjoyed that marathon a lot which al of course i think i've mentioned it to a few times but even if you want to stick for one of the come by for one of the two days that we do this it is it is quite a treat just to sit down and binge a ton of movies of a certain type because it really just it it can get a little and we we do breaks in between obviously but seeing all of them you just kind of feel it's this it's this unique cinephile full that you feel after doing it and it's really yeah it's really interesting you guys experience. you guys should invite me when uh, you guys get around to doing the exploitation movies of the 80s like okay. the, the and basically everyone knows the film most famous oh uh you mean uh, Aussie Australian films? Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, In fact, I didn't realize that was a thing until I walked in to the the like monster and sci-fi section of <laughs> and looked down there and oh, Aussie exploitation. I had no idea that was a thing. So the mo- the most famous of those is a uh, is a Mad Max, um, but uh, the, the original Mad Max. But uh, mm-hmm. th- there's like a whole wealth of it, and it's basically like the movies that made like Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino alongside Hong Kong cinema. But, and black exploitation um, for Quentin Tarantino. Oh well. yeah, oh yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, on this episode, we're actually uh, going to be talking about a different uh, filmmaker from the Pacific, uh, considered one of the great masters of the medium, and that is Hayao Miyazaki, who many people, both in Japan and in the West, considered probably not only the greatest uh, anime or animated uh, feature director to have ever lived, or to live, but to have ever lived. Although Miyazaki himself would probably be like, no, 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 that's uh, Isao Takahata, my mentor, not me. Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, Hayao Miyazaki, who again is a titan in the animation industry, he pretty much, it's pretty much him. And um, the name escapes me, John. I don't know if you can jumpstart my memory. The the guy who directed the, The Thief and the Cobbler, um, uh, R- Richard Williams. Richard Williams. It's him. It's Miyazaki Williams and uh, arguably uh, uh, the the Warner Brothers guys, Tex Avery, uh, Chuck uh, Chuck Jones. Uh, those guys are are the gods of animation. If you, to any animation uh, aficionado, you can ask around. Um, so uh, yeah. Um, well, because the funny thing is, you didn't really have uh, standalone animation directors. Uh, until you well they they were mainly in the shorts which is where all the warner brothers guys were because mm-hmm. the directors of the animation directors for disney shorts and disney films never really got the front line recognition because it was always a uh a walt disney production effort so his name was at the front you got i think the director of animation listed somewhere near the 
one of the first title cards. And that was intentional. That was intentional on Disney's part. He he was very meticulous about like that was just his philosophy was that this is a group effort, although it's my name, but you know. <laughs> yeah. That that's all that's a subject matter for a completely separate podcast on its own. <laughs> that but fair, yeah. fair. Um so one thing, fellow uh, our fellow audience, is that I'm currently going through strep throat, so I'm not gonna be talking as much on this podcast. Um, but suffice to say, uh, I'll begin uh, with, uh, well, I'll kind of let uh, C take the reins for a yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, but just before we start, uh, oh, sorry, uh, John, if you can give your uh, introduction to Miyazaki, then C, and then I will, and then C kind of lead the conversation before we're ready to, uh, to take, the, to take the, the trailer and then give our review. That sounds great. So yeah, John. Um, how in your in your uh, trials and tribulations of a, of a film as a cinephile, what um, <laughs> what a way to say it. Uh, how did Miyazaki come along into the picture? And uh, yeah, what was your experience with that? What was my introduction to him? Yes, and yeah. Okay, so I'm pretty sure the first. I think the very first anime anything that I watched was Spirited Away mm. and then Kiki's Delivery Service because both of those uh, had VHS copies at my local library. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it would have been after that that I uh, worked up to asking my mother if I could have the permission to watch uh, any other anime that I wanted, which... You know, it, just digging a little into it, you start to realize how uh, mature and adult a lot of that material is. And so it's like you're, you are you end up watching it late at night because you don't want anybody walking in on you. <laughs> yep. That's why Tsunami um, was on a little later in the evening. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did watch uh, Fooly Cooly early on. I watched, uh, and this is this is not... Uh, literally a, a dirty program but it's called the dirty pair which is uh it, it's a a sci-fi kick-ass action series of uh two ladies in outer space that's you know uh kind of officially work as guns for hire but they cause a lot of collateral damage so it's it's a uh, representational title not uh, a content title mm. but um Miyazaki, uh, I think after I saw Kiki's Delivery Service, I I knew that Howl's Moving Castle was coming out relatively soon because that would have been 2008. I didn't actually see it in theaters, if I remember correctly. I didn't have the chance to, so I had to wait until it came out on DVD the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I bought a copy rather than rented it, and I would have rented all of the other films... Uh, my Neighbor Tortoro, Pompoco, uh, Porco Rosso, which I was quite surprised by. And then uh, that dovetailed into me learning about Lupin the Third, because I think I knew, I, I learned about uh, Lupin's main TV series from 1978, the, the Red Jacket show, which is like 198 episodes. And then I learned that Miyazaki had worked on the original Lupin series in 71. Uh, he and Takahata both wrote and directed like the, the later two-thirds of the series. Mm-hmm. And then Miyazaki was uh, 
chosen nine years later to direct the second Lupin feature film. Um, and interestingly enough, the reason why they made two feature films back to back, which was um, the the mystery of Mamo and the castle of Cagliostro, the reason they made both films is because they wanted to show off both sides of Lupin's personality in the public zeitgeist because oh. Miyazaki had softened him up for the the series that he worked on and then there was the Red Jacket series which he was still softer than he is in the manga in the manga he's very he's even more perverse he's more lecherous and he's uh more of a a sleaze ball I guess it, for lack of a better term so they wanted the mystery of Mamo to be that edgier side. And then Miyazaki just totally gave him this uh, Robin Hood image for Cagliostro, which that version of him has carried a lot more weight throughout the rest of the franchise than his sleazier side. Hmm. Uh, but it, it's kind of balanced out uh, across the past three decades. That's fair. That's fair. So, okay, so that's, you You took Miyazaki in stride with a lot of other things you were watching, would that be fair to say? Yes. Uh, I, I would say he his work stood out for the longest time in terms of its technical prowess, because when you look for other anime films that impress on that visual level, uh, what you come across is uh, uh, Mamoru Oshii with Akira, Mm-hmm. and his other um, anthology films like Memories or Robot Carnival mm-hmm. or... Which uh, are amazing, Neo- by the way. Yeah, or Neo Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the guy who directed Ninja Scroll and Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, which those are probably like the most visually rich-looking films even compared to Miyazaki films. Miyazaki films are beautifully animated and and beautifully painted for their settings, but they have an elegantly simplified art style uh, that's kind of, you know, uh, characters have broader bodies than traditional anime styles. Um, And then something like Vampire Hunter D or Ninja Scroll, they have very muscular bodies with angular face shapes. So you get a lot of detail in their bone structure. Yeah. So, um, okay, my, I'll say my introduction to Miyazaki, I'll be broad with this. My introduction to anime was Pokemon, and then very quickly after that, Dragon Ball Z. Um, And that's all I thought anime was for a long time. I just watched those uh, very much off and on, along with my other habits of watching Cartoon Network and then Nickelodeon and all that. And it was just a part of the mix, so to speak. I also knew about Yu-Gi-Oh! as well. Wasn't as into it at the time for a while. Um, Miyazaki, I heard about because there was, in my hometown, there was a local video store, which I was very lucky to live near. Um, And they would, the front, so... Two of, two of the walls that were basically windows, they'd put up different posters of movies that they would get. And they put up the poster for Spirited Away. And I was like, oh, okay, that's different. I've never seen, because I'd never seen an anime movie poster put there at all. 
let alone I, I knew other anime existed, but you know, seeing that poster put up kind of put it in the forefront of my brain, made me think it was very important. Turns out it was. But I didn't really ever get around to it for a while until one year during the Super Bowl, Cartoon Network decided, because a lot of other networks will just play like anything during the Super Bowl because they know no one's going to watch, which is fair. <laughs> um, and uh, I was watching the Super Bowl for the first half. <clears throat> I don't remember who was playing even, but for the first half, I watched it with my mom and dad. And then I kind of got bored because sports wasn't my thing. And my sister was in the basement where we had this older TV and she was watching Spirited Away. And so I just sat there for a while and I watched about a third of it, not even the, or I'd say a fourth of it there. But the problem was every like 10 minutes or so, 10 to 15 minutes, they'd have a long commercial break cutting in between. Yeah. But I could still see the, I was shocked by the beauty of it. Like I was mainly certain sequences in the bathhouse. It was, it was that, that's what I saw, and I was just absolutely enamored by it. And I realized the girl looked familiar, but I didn't put it together until about a about a, a while later. I realized that that was Spirited Away. So I watched that. I was absolutely. I rented it from that video store. I was amazed by it, and then I slowly started watching certain anime movies by certain directors. Um, for the most part, it was Miyazaki, Satoshi Kon a little bit. Uh, although Satoshi, Satoshi Kon more went into my college days. But still Satoshi Kon, Miyazaki, um, obviously Akira, Akira and Ghost in the Shell. So like that was sort of all a part of, of that. But there was like about a large chunk of, his, of the Studio Ghibli, I should say, filmography that I hadn't watched. And then you know how Fathom Events every like few years does a Studio Ghibli Fest where they replay a bunch of the movies in the big screen? I like decided to go to almost every one of those, even if I already hadn't seen it. I was like, let me just see as many of these as I can on the big screen, just to cover it all. And that's when I saw um, Porco Rosso. No, sorry, not Porco Rosso. I'll get to that. That's when I saw... Um, Kiki's Delivery Service and uh, My Neighbor Totoro for the first time. I'll say that Princess Mononoke on the big screen was a revelation. Really incredible. Um, I did get to see uh, Mononoke in um, uh, the Trustees Theater in downtown Savannah, Georgia, before they, I guess, renamed the the theater. Mm. Yeah. No, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty. Oh, yeah, they did do that. Um and yeah pretty much ever since then i've been paying attention to what's been going on um and of course when i heard about this i was ready for it um and yeah and now we're here at this movie uh al what was your how did you get into miyazaki uh so uh the disney disney channel was i think disney had just bought the rights to Hmm. I think I, I I don't remember exactly, but I remember it was like right after Spirited Away won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Mm-hmm. Somehow or another, Disney Channel got the rights to show uh, Kiki's Delivery Service and um, My Neighbor Totoro and I believe Castle in the Sky, I believe, and Porco Rosso. 
So mm-hmm. my first ever Miyazaki film was one day I was just skimming the channels as a kid. And on Disney Channel, there's this little cute little witch. And my little sister was like, oh, God, I want to watch this. It looks so cute. And I watched it with her. And I was like, this kind of because my, my introduction to anime was pretty much every young boy's introduction to anime. It was Dragon Ball Z. Um, and it was Dragon Ball Z and this little known anime from Sunrise called Ronin Warriors. Uh, and I and then um, because I had a, I had a previous love for Transformers, when uh, Gundam Wing made, jumped on the scene on Cartoon Network, I ate that up. I became obsessed. So um, you know, I could tell. I was like, this. I think this is Japanese. Although at the time, I, I had no idea that anime was a Japanese style. I just always knew like. Somehow or another, Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z, uh, Inuyasha, um, Gundam, Gundam Wing, they all have a similar style. I didn't know why, but I knew it was a similar style. Um, and later on did I find out, like, oh, it's all Japanese. Or it comes from Japan. So Kiki's Delivery Service, I was watching, I'm like, this is Japanese. Or, or this, is, this is like that style, right? Um, and I, I, I liked Kiki's Delivery Service. And then months later, I saw My Neighbor Totoro, and I was like, oh, I think this is from the guy who did, like, the witch thing. I could, Or this is from the people who did the witch thing, because the ads were, like, from the creators of Kiki's Delivery Service and Spirited Away. Um, eventually, somewhere down the line, uh, my sister got a, hand, a hold of a VHS of Spirited Away that a friend of hers from church had said, oh, you need to watch this. And I was like, I don't know how mom's going to leave. Because my, my mother's a very devout, like, Protestant Christian. I was like, I don't know how she's going to let you watch this. But it turned out to be it, – it's like one of those movies that, like, that like is a bonding moment between my sister and my mother. They both absolutely adored it. And anytime they're together, that always gets brought up as something to watch. But I was watching Spirited Away, and I thought to myself, like, this isn't like – this, is, is, this isn't like um, Dragon Ball Z. This isn't like Digimon. This this is like something elevated. Um, and ironically, it was it was kind of Miyazaki along with Christopher Nolan that kind of jump started my appreciation for for feature films because I was like, this isn't what I normally watch on TV. This is something something totally different. And then um, later on, uh, it wasn't Disney Channel. I don't remember what channel it was. But somebody was showing Porco Rosso. And when I saw Porco Rosso, uh, it, it, it was like uncut. And it, it was like uncut. And um, it was I, I don't know if it was the Michael Keaton dub because I know I, I don't know. But I, I remember watching it and I thought to myself, because in Porco Rosso, there's a scene that I consider to be the most beautiful thing Ghibli has ever made, which is like the uh, the deceased, uh, the deceased pilots going into heaven. Like a parade going into heaven. And I thought to myself, like, this, this is, this is crazy. And then um, my sister heard about, uh, my sister heard about uh, uh, a house moving castle. And we watched that. And I was like, I wasn't as impressed with it. But I was like, okay, this, th- this guy knows what he's doing. And that's when I, it was when we saw house moving castle, that I took it upon myself to learn his name, Hayao Miyazaki. And, um, once once I started getting into films, I wanted to be like, okay, well, what are the anime films besides this Miyazaki guy that are good? That's where I learned about Isao Takahata. Uh, that's where I learned about Oshi, Otomo. 
um, you know, Akira, uh, Ghost in the Shell. But that's also where I learned about uh, Mamoru Hosada and uh, uh, Makoto Shinkai, right? They were like the – because when I was in high school at the time, they were considered like the new kids on the block, right? Uh, Hosada had just done um, like a bunch of Digimon movies, and he was about to do The Girl Who Left Through Time, I believe. Was it, 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 he, he was going to do The Girl Who Left Through Time or Summer Wars. It was one of those two. Mm-hmm. And Shinkai had just done five centimeters per second. And I was like, oh, wow. Oh, and obviously Satoshi Kon, which I was like obsessed with him for a hot minute, especially with yeah. Paprika. And um, yeah. in high school when I was like, oh, wow, these anime directors are like can go blow for blow with uh, the Pixar guys um, who were the only other animation directors who were working at the time that I knew their names. They sometimes go blow for blow with some of the live action directors, too, to be clear. Oh, yeah. Like, God damn. Oh, yeah. Um, that's why I always say they should just give uh, Kashishiro Tomo the reins to direct live action Akira. But he said, I, j- I did Akira in the 80s. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> and I don't blame him. Um, so uh, Miyazaki is the reason why I started paying attention to anime feature film directors. And right now, I really see the connection between... Hasada, especially he, he's just done uh, Mirai, he just did uh, Bell, and uh, Shinkai, who just did uh, uh, Shizume and, um, and uh, uh, Your Name. You see the line between Miyazaki to these two guys who are now the, who are considered like the golden boys of, of, of anime feature film cinema in, uh, in Japan. So, you know, I, I've come to really appreciate them. I still think Porco Rosso is his best movie. Um, I'm ashamed to say I didn't see Princess Mononoke until uh, freshman year of college, and I didn't see Nausicaa until, like, sophomore year of college. Um, and the other thing, before before we continue on with the conversation, was, like, so where I lived, even though they, they did a limited screenings of, of Ponyo, right, I, I did not live anywhere near a city that I could go see it. So I missed Ponyo when it got released. So I, I ended up just seeing that when it came out, uh, when I got like the Netflix disc. And uh, I'm ashamed to say The Wind Rises got a wide release. I think it was the first Miyazaki film to get like a full on wide release outside of Spirited Away, which didn't get a wide release until like its second run. But I didn't know about him at that time. I was so busy with school, with college, that I missed it. Like, I straight up missed it, and I pinched myself because I was like, well, Miyazaki's never going to make another movie. And finally, finally, <laughs> with uh, this film, The Boy and the Heron, or, or How Do You Live is as how it's called in Japan. I is it fi- really? That's its name? Yeah. In Japan? I didn't know that. Wow. Uh, but, but Ghibli said they wanted it called The Boy and the Heron in, uh, in Western markets. Interesting. But finally, I have seen a released Miyazaki movie in theaters and i'm really really happy about that 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 is incredible one thing i have to add is that i'm noticing between the three of us miyazaki is seems to be the stepping stone at least for us from just the the common stuff you see released in the west to the next level stuff and i should add that with this new generation the it's being more like the stuff that we would view as less common in the West is becoming more common. But when we were kids, it was not the case. So I find it interesting that for all three of us, Miyazaki kind of was that bridge for us, like that bridge from Dragon Ball Z to more 
more refined and lesser known things or refined and lesser known. Um, so I just find that very kind of awesome that that it, there's that similarity between the three of us. I'm, um, I, I mean, you would have, if it wasn't for Miyazaki, do you think you would have seen any movie by Masaki Yuasa? He's the guy who did The Night is Short, Walk on Girl, and Devil oh, no, May Cry I, I would never have. There's there's so many. I'm Well, actually, well, John, I can't speak for you here, but for me, I think he really was that bridge. Do you, do you see it that kind of way, John? Or is it more you think you would have eventually seen the same movies as you would as you already did later on if uh if somehow miyazaki didn't exist but his films had his influence in the industry would have still resulted in all the other stuff after him uh i probably would have seen the same things but it it would feel emptier without miyazaki in the history and with his films not included among everything else Mm -hmm. Uh, because his stuff is so well well constructed well written and well orchestrated that it you know it 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 uh it's their his movies are mesmerizing in their slowness in how they take their time to acclimate you to an atmosphere and in the way that they affect your emotions that until we got to somebody like Shinkai, you didn't really get in older anime movies. They were they were a bit more. Um, they were like '80s American cinema in certain ways. They they were more bizarre. They still did some emotional things, but they were a bit more pop art, in that they were still adapting uh, an anime to a feature film, which was also adapted from a manga which is what most anime is it's only a handful of directors that are doing completely original works or they're adapting a novel from the west which miyazaki has done uh he's he's adapted multiple books but i think only how's moving castle was a western uh product originally oh okay wow well um on that note i think would it be good to play the trailer Alrighty. Let's do it. Mahito. So, you made it. Mother! Have a seat. It's this way, Mahito. A lot of strange things happen in this place. I just hope he stays safe. What exactly are you? Your mother. She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. What is this place? This world is filled with the dead. I know it's a lie. But I have to see. I'm looking for someone. Let's go. We must protect this world ourselves. Go back! Now! Argo! Argo! You and I aren't friends or allies, kid. Don't let go, no matter what. Ready? 
see this world? There's more work to be done. A gray heron once told me that all gray herons are liars. So is that the truth or a lie? A the lie. truth! Mm. Mm. I think we have to be a lie too. Well, um, so, uh, John, I think you've listened to some of our episodes, so I think you're, you're pretty familiar with our, um, our review system, but just to sort of run it, run it through real quick, we will each give our take on it, what we liked, what we didn't like, um, any general thoughts. And at the end, we will give it a rating, uh, a one through five rating. But we, 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 uh, we don't use one through five on this podcast. Uh, we say sucks, meh. Sorry, sucks, meh. Movie, flush and fucks. Uh, sucks being one and fucks being five. Um, so whatever you're comfortable with giving it, of course, at the end we can uh, give it that. Any conversations that come up in between, of course, will that's great. Um, but John, since you are our guest, I'd like to uh, open the floor up to you. You know, um, what did you like? What did you not like? Um, any thoughts you have, uh, go for it. And uh, if I jump in, I apologize. But uh, John, the floor is yours. Well, yeah, I think I think this should be uh, a conversation. At least that's what I was uh, preparing for. Because and it will th- be. And it will yeah. be. It will be. Yeah. Uh, before I begin, I uh, I have one correction and one question. Sure. I mistakenly had said Mamoru Oshii before as having directed Akira, but that uh, Oshii directed Ghost in the Shell. It's mm-hmm. Katsuhiro Otomo that I keep forgetting the name of. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the uh, Akira and anthology director. Yes, yes. That's very true. Um, Thank you. Now, the question is, uh, you, you said notch number three is just movie? Movie. It's, that it's means just a movie? It's a movie, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> we, we, he, they made a movie. And now you, you can... So, okay, for example... Um, let me say this. I'll say this. Uh, Al and I went to see this movie together, and we saw the subtitled version of this mm-hmm. because we went to an early preview of it, and it was not dubbed. Now, John, am I correct in thinking that you saw the dubbed version? I did see the dubbed version. Okay, uh, so I'm jealous. Uh, you're right. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so j- just just wanted to yeah. say uh, I'm I'm fully on the dub over sub especially when it comes to uh, animated feature films. Um, so I think uh, the argument stopped being a thing in the early-ish 2000s, I think. Like once uh, no, no one who really loves dub really loves subtitles would ever say that. Really? They will never agree to that. Fair. But okay, would you say okay, actually here's a question, John. Would you say there there is now a point where for the most part it doesn't matter as much? Like there's enough quality behind it usually yes uh i i think as a reasonably subjective opinion the quality of dubs got good enough by the time of 2008 2009 so past that you're dealing with dubs that are intentionally casted to have 
English voice actors that sound identical to their Japanese counterparts, because that's mm. the whole point. You want them to capture the same uh, tonality, the same uh, vocal characteristics, the same personality. So it's going to be similar. The only reason you would subjectively think the Japanese actor sounds better is maybe they scream with more feeling you know and it really yanks at your heartstrings when they're crying over somebody's death mm -hmm. or you think it sounds better because you you don't know what they're saying so you can't make the same connection listening to it in Japanese as you can in English for all the words that they're saying so you don't really know if they sound just as goofy portraying a goofy character as an English actor portraying the same character who's also goofy because mm -hmm. I've seen I've seen clips of people talking about the English voice actors for the One Piece series and they're making fun of how the English actors sound but I listen to it and it's like what's the difference mm -hmm. there's no difference here they're doing the exact same performance mm -hmm. so okay have it that that's that's fair that's really fair um so you saw the dub of this um what did you think of it did because I know you have expressed to me privately that you do get frustrated when they give all these and again I'm not you know I'm not trying to put words in your mouth please correct me if I'm wrong or clarify your opinion of course but you've said to me in the past that you do get frustrated when these dub roles or these voice acting roles are given automatically to these A-list actors uh, when there are in fact really talented you know voice actors out there and it's their main job. So is that still yeah. the case? Or sorry, yeah. Uh, that That is mostly true when we're talking about, like, the, the glorified ensemble productions, you know, like when lesser studios, lesser known studios, make a 3D animated movie starring dogs or starring birds, and the entire <laughs> cast is filled with musical performers and rappers doing like their third IMDb role mm. and uh, another movie with you know Jack Black in a small role you got uh, somebody coming back out of retirement to do a new role because they haven't been on on camera in a decade and a half mm. it's like okay the only reason you're doing that is because you think these people will draw in an audience but you're making a movie for children are you trying to draw in an audience of their parents that might care to hear the voice of a of a singer they like playing a dog? What is the method method of this madness? That's yeah, that's completely fair. Um, so, but that's also interesting that it's like it seems like Western movies, at least the the popular the Western movies in America, they're almost more guilty of this than the dubbing of Japanese movies, give or take. Although I think Miyazaki um, has, I don't even know if we know that for sure because I've never actually looked into what the the standard practice of of uh, the Japanese movie industry is. There might be, uh, I, in fact, I know there are a few instances of celebrities who were hired to play characters uh, with no prior acting experience, but it it was specific instances. I don't think I don't think it is a a, a systematic thing. Sure. But there are instances where they did it for the publicity stunt. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so that all being said, what did you think of the dubbing in uh, The Boy and the Heron? Uh, solid as you could expect, uh, because 
let's see. So if either of you don't know, when you look at the documentary footage on the original DVDs or Blu-rays of the Ghibli movies here in the West, all of the dubs up to Howl's Moving Castle were handled by John Lasseter and um, uh, the director of Up. I forget his name at the moment. But they would have handled the 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 voice direction in the booth for all of the English actors doing those dubs. And then uh, once the rights for distribution moved over to G-Kids, the handful of dubs we got after Disney, uh, specifically for uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, mm-hmm. uh, and From Up on Poppy Hill, and when Marnie was there, those were handled by G-Kids. And their uh, commitment to the same level of quality and picking you know, similarly well-known uh, actors who have very good vocal presence uh, is, is almost identical to what Disney was doing. So there is a good continuity between their two approaches. Okay. Which is one of the reasons why you see Christian Bale came back to play the uh, uh, Mahito's father and uh, Mark Hamill came back for his third Ghibli role as uh, the great uncle. I didn't realize it was third. Wow. What else did he do? Uh, he was a bit character in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I, he was um, the like a, a leader of uh, a village uh, that helped Nausicaa get on one of their flying ships just before okay. she was uh, just before she escapes on her glider into the clouds for that chase sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's on one of his aircraft. Okay. And then he played the villain in Laputa. Okay. Okay. Um, so, because when I looked at the list, and so. Al and I, jeez, Al and I uh, saw the subtitled version, and the voices were great, but, you know, we're also trying to read the words that are that are going on on the screen so we can see follow the plot. Um, so I, we were, at least I was less focused on the sounds that they were making uh, out of their voice for the most part. But for my money, and I was listening to the trailer just now, I could not believe that the heron, the gray heron, that that is Robert Pattinson doing that. That is no, I that would have never crossed my mind trying to guess who it was. Yeah, and credit to Robert Pattinson once again. I, over the years, I, I've I've just become more and more a fan of him as he's done more and more things. He really that to go that intense with that voice and to keep it up. I imagine. I mean, to just hear it in the trailer was impressive, but that must have been something else for a feature-length movie. Um, yeah, because he's going completely against his natural voice. He, there's no Britishness in, in it. Uh, I don't know exactly what kind of accent he's aiming for, but it's almost the kind of accent that uh, a, an American actor would attempt for this sleazy, underhanded uh, persona. So. Mm-hmm. He's going an extra layer, hiding his British accent on top of it. That's that's and that's all the more impressive. So, okay, 
So what were your thoughts? What do you think? Walking out of the movie theater, what were the thoughts that were coming up in your head? Uh, what the fuck was was just happening there? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck was any of that? Um, because uh, I'll I'll give you I'll give you a breakdown of my overall feelings first of all. Sure, sure. The the opening portion, although I guess it was like a, a direct halfway in the film is where it transitioned from our world to the other dimension. I feel like it was directly halfway through because even before he goes there, he's still inside the tower in that like sitting room when the facsimile of the mother melts into the, into the, the couch, you're still not in the other dimension until they get pulled through the floor. So that's halfway through the film. If I remember right, so everything up until that, fantastic. I loved the pacing. I loved the background design. I loved the lore that they were establishing up to that point. After that, my feelings completely shifted because now I realized we're halfway through this movie. We're not going to be in this other dimension very long, so we're not going to learn that much about it. And what we do learn makes no sense. It, it's that is that's I almost want you to go on to that point it's like <laughs> it's like because I'm not saying you're wrong but at the same time because for me what it was is I agree the first half we're following along with the story and then the second half I just sort of decided Oh, this is Miyazaki like working through his own personal shit. Is what I just sort of decided. He's like mm-hmm. he's just trying to figure things out because clearly the old man is him, and I think the boy is him too. When I left the theater, I looked at Al and I said, "I think that conversation they had was between his old self and his young self." Just like just to quickly interject, actually, yeah. uh, I did some research on that. Yes. According to Miyazaki himself, he is the kid. But the old man is Isao Takahata, his, his mentor in Studio Ghibli. Make of that as you will, because Takahata died, like, what, two years ago? Two years ago? Yeah. 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 So, so I, like, I, I, I always thought that they considered themselves equals, but apparently Miyazaki was like, no, he's my teacher. I was his student. And I'm like, wow. Like, I, I just learned that recently. And I just wanted to let you know, because I, I know you mentioned yeah. that before. And yeah. I was like, oh, let me tell C that. What it <laughs> that, actually is. Like the old, the, the old man represents his like co-worker his and co-founder who he considered yeah. like a teacher and like a substitute father to him. Wow. So just want to interject with that. Well, no, that's fair. That's And of course, interject anytime. I, um, so knowing that now, that just makes this weirder. Um, but I think what it was, what I decided to do, because again, John, you're not wrong. But I kind of just decided, you know what? Embrace the cool visuals. Have fun with it. I particularly appreciated the sequence with all the paper uh, and 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 the, the not the mother, but the the yeah. Uh, uh, I th- I want to say they called them charms. Yeah. I don't know if it's part of the Shinto religion, but I they're they're paper seal charms or something like that stuck around this 
circle around the bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was that was fascinating. But one dr- one takeaway I had very quickly as well is that there was a little bit of everything in this movie. And when I say a little bit of everything, I mean a little bit of everything in the world of Miyazaki. He very much you see little pieces of his other work in all in in, in little bits here and there. Um, you see other sequences even. Even the paper sequence, that's uh, a bit from uh, Spirited Away. Um, right, with with the little uh, paper bird origami things. Yes, yes. And it was almost like he just did, he was like, he he was, it's almost like he took, he, he took from his own catalog and... It was almost like him doing like a a, re, a redo of it, but in its own but in its own form, in its own movie. It's like let me take the the bits that I like the most and let me do them again. Either it's my greatest hits. It's my and I think that's what it came out as, but I don't think he meant to do it that way. I almost felt like he was trying to like perfect certain moments again, like he was trying to make them better. And but that never usually works mm. when an artist tries to do that. We know yeah. that. Whenever a musician comes out with a remix, usually it's not better. Um, it's very rare where that's the case. So, but I think speaking of which, oh, did no. you hear? T- did you know today? Uh, there, I probably was today. They they announced that One Piece is not even over, and we're gonna make it again with a new animation studio. Stop. <laughs> Great. I never watched One Piece, but I know it never ended. And now it really will never end. Um, yeah, because once we end the story, you get to watch it again. It's like Full Metal <laughs> Alchemist. They're going to just do it again. Yeah, but then with a thousand episodes. Yeah, sure. Why not? They, people got to work, I guess. Sure. Keep them in business. Um, so... Also, I will add, when I heard that Willem Dafoe was in this, hearing the voice of the Heron, I was like, oh, that's Willem Dafoe doing that. So, again, being so shocked that uh, Robert Pattinson did that, again, just insane. Um, Also, Dave Bautista voicing the Parakeet King is kind of funny. Just that idea that he's doing that is... Right. I'm just imagining him being given that role. He's like, I'm in a Miyazaki movie, but I'm the Parakeet King? Okay. Um, now, so I think because I accepted that this was kind of, this was Miyazaki self-reflecting a ton, um, even with the new information Al has just given me, it's him looking back at his life. And you know what? With all the, the great work he's made, okay, you get, you get to do that. Like, go ahead, make it work. You're still talented. Like, you're still good at what you do. Uh, I agree with you also that the opening scene, the the earlier, well, especially the opening sequence, but the first half of the movie is incredibly strong. Um, Like that scene, slight spoiler, but there's a scene where he gets into a fight with a kid, and then after he leaves, he clearly loses the fight. And then he picks up a rock on his way home and starts hitting the side of his head with it until he bleeds badly. Well, he hits his head once. He gives it a good thwack it bleeds out profusely yeah. because Ghibli loves drawing liquids really heavy. And, but seeing that was so intense. And I realized that that is such a, f- 
fascinating and what's the word I'm looking for? What a portrayal of grief that is. Because that's what that's what that was. And seeing him do that was almost him what's the word? There's a thing they they say like if you ever see kid like certain really young kids start to like kind of slap themselves in the face when they're angry. I'm talking very young. Let me be clear. Very young kids um, mm-hmm. do that. Um, that that's sort of what you're seeing. But he almost like it's like he couldn't express his. He wasn't allowed to express his grief, so he took it out in a way that on himself in the only way he knew. That is yeah. such a deep concept to put in a movie like this. That for that alone, I have to like give Miyazaki praise. <laughs> like really, that is. That is going deep. That is, that is cutting deep. Genuinely, no pun intended. But that is cutting very deep. Yeah. Um. So. We'll. We'll give our, you know, John. We'll give our official like actual rating number I- I- at the very end. But but Al, uh, what did what did you think? I am shocked that it took until now for Miyazaki to enter his Terrence Malick phase. Because <laughs> that, that's what I haven't even was. seen a Terrence Malick film, and I know what that means. <laughs> and that's hilarious because... Wait, 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 Days of Totoro. <laughs> pr- pretty much. Or, or, or basically... Or basically days of being spirited away. Uh, days of being spirited away. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, no, that, that, that's, that's, <laughs> this, this was definitely a film that was about vibes and aesthetics versus story. And normally, I mean, what made Miyazaki so accessible to the West was that he was, he was always like, he was always like a, a like a storyteller. They, they always compared him to Spielberg where it was like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to tell a really good story and then there's going to be awesome visuals on top of that. That was kind of Spielberg's M.O. Um, this was the first time where I was like, oh, this isn't Miyazaki doing Spielberg. This is Miyazaki doing um, Terrence Malick. This is Miyazaki doing, um, in an odd way, kind of David Lynch almost. Um, it's actually kind of funny. This I was like, if, if, if you had told me that Oshi had gone to Ghibli and made a movie and that this was the result, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this would be a, a Ghibli movie as done by yeah, Oshi. Yeah, I, I can see that making a bit more sense. Yeah, um, and I think I think that really comes down to the fact that Miyazaki, you know, he's in his 80s, he's being self-reflective, and especially if you watch, like, that Ghibli documentary that came out, like, when The Wind Rises came out and, like, the things you've, you've heard from him, he's he really is kind of going like animation the the art over the story now like full on um i i guess that's because you know he he cares more about the process than he does about the story he's trying to tell because remember this started off as being a straight adaptation of the novel that's in the book called how do you live uh he was going to make a basically a straight adaptation of the novel and then isao takahata died and he went in a totally different direction um so I'll, I'll be honest the animation is gorgeous especially anything that references the the fire that starts at the beginning of the movie like where it has like that like frame rate effect that's gorgeous and that still sticks to my mind um and 
it was interesting because normally, especially in Miyazaki films, the fantasy element in in the Ghibli movie usually pops up like pretty quickly into the first act. I mean, in Spirited Away, it happens like within the first 10 minutes. Uh, yes. And, it, and in this one, it took its time. It took its time and it was very much just kind of being this character study of Mahito and how he deals with grief. Um surprisingly because if you know anything about Miyazaki's history you know that he really didn't connect with his dad at all but in here we have a dad that's being very supportive a stepmother that's trying to reach out and usually the fantasy elements have some sort of logical rationality they have some sort of like story rules and in this one it was like it's it's a cosmic thing. Don't worry about it. And that was so unlike Miyazaki. Um, and then yeah, once... that's what threw me because any any of his other films, there is an internal logic that you can follow, and the stuff that is not explained to you normally isn't in similar films. But this is uh, almost entirely an original lore, from what I can tell. I don't know how much of it was pulled from the book but it didn't seem to make sense at first glance. Yeah, it's 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 so weird um, because, like, again, you expect this from someone like Oshi who's like, don't worry about it, don't think about it, just, just enjoy the vibes. Um, there is something there that he's trying to say, but I think because he's just so much so focused on the technique and the aesthetics that you're kind of like, so is this about like maintaining a world? Is this about grief? What what is what is all this about? And then I remember I was reading a review by like a French film critic who was basically basically going like Miyazaki's being super inaccessible because, you know, he's old, but that's what makes this movie such a such a joy to watch because there's just so many layers and I was like Okay, it could be that, or it could be that he was just focusing on the vibes and, and really that you really can't take any larger message out of that, even though, you know, Miyazaki's known for having messages in his movies. Maybe there is a message here. I don't know. But it's it's weird to me that someone like him who, when he does care about that message, he makes it very clear, especially stuff like his anti-war stuff. And right. it's so inaccessible to even a layman that you're like, okay, then there must not be a message here because, like, Miyazaki, when he wants you to know what he's thinking, he will make sure you know what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I, I I don't know. I don't know. I, you, you know, I have to add, um, and let me be clear, Miyazaki is a legend. We're, we're, he's better than all of us, of course. But, you know, there were there were – there were similar, not sim- sorry, not similar critiques, but there were a lot of interesting critiques when the when the wind rises came out. Pe- keep in mind, people enjoyed it, but the biggest critique about that, and I'll tell you why I'm getting into this, is that everyone felt like the characters in the wind rises were significantly under underdeveloped when compared to other Ghibli movies. Like it was a noticeable, stark contrast. Um, yeah. And, and they're supposed to be actual people too, 
And yeah, that was the other thing. These were real people. And so a lot of people thought, well, maybe he'd... One, theory, one thing I heard was that, like, because they were real people, he kind of struggled to... He really... Maybe it revealed that he really relied on making his own characters, his own people, and that basing them on real people kind of, like, forced him to make them kind of flat. We don't really know, but that was sort of what was written off. But in here, let's be clear, the characters are very well developed, at least the main, the main characters, I should say. The main characters, yeah. especially the protagonist, extraordinarily well developed. But I agree with you guys that there is this, um, there is this ambiguity about it that's clearly intentional, but that it's surprise. It's just downright shocking that he would do it, um, especially, you know. Because here's the thing: like everyone's saying, this is going to be his last movie. No, well, he's he's is. making he's making another one. Oh, it's been it, confirmed. Oh, the, it's been it's confirmed. It's been confirmed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, then never. Which we have to hope he does not die halfway through. Otherwise, he won't even have the storyboards finished. I mean, yeah. the the Japanese and I mean, uh, it's weird. The Japanese still, by and large, smoke a lot, but they they end up living on average in, well into their nineties. So. Who knows what, what's in so there? He's, he's got the odds in his favor in that case. I guess. But because here's the thing. The Wind Rises was pitched as his farewell masterpiece, his last movie. Dude. For the record. Dude. Everything yeah. since Princess Mononoke has been pitched as his farewell masterpiece. Oh, God. Exactly. Okay. Well, yeah, then, it's literally been since then because he – I think that – Mononoke was the last film that he personally put his hand and pencil to every frame of that film. Jesus. Okay. Well then, all right then. Yeah, sure. This is so everything's gonna be his last for the next ten movies. I'm just kidding. Um, but okay. The th- but the thing is, it's like, like like if this ends up being if he dies before his next one comes out, this is gonna be a real eyes wide shut bookend. Not in this. It's not weird like eyes wide shut. Obviously, eyes wide shut. For those of you who don't know, Eyes Wide Shut is Stanley Kubrick's last movie. For the record, this isn't weird like Eyes Wide Shut is weird. But it is extremely dreamlike and ambiguous. And that's like a Terrence Malick movie. That was the vibe he was going for here. So mm. if this is his last movie, it's kind of going to create a trend of a lot of directors where their last movie is kind of just more abstract. Because, okay, think about it. So many directors do this. Okay, Tarkovsky, who's already abstract as shit. His last movie, The Sacrifice, they burn a house down, and we are not clear as to why entirely. Uh, Kubrick, we have Eyes Wide Shut, which the whole thing just feels like a dream, uh, which was intentional. And then that was, again, he was trying to make one more movie, but he died after that. Uh, Now we've got The the Boy and the Heron. Uh, But even... um, Akira Kurosawa, Dreams. Literally, the name of this last movie, Dreams. Uh, Satoshi Kon's last movie that he was working on was called The Dream Machine. And apparently that... And that's after Paprika? Yeah, so Dream Machine... Which is already about dreams. So The Dream Machine was, like, supposed to be about, like, nightmares and stuff, and then he died. And Madhouse has been trying to make it on and off for the past, like, decade and a half. It's just... The, the storyboards he made, which apparently he totally storyboarded it, but the storyboards he made, they were just so, like, incoherent to the animators that they're like, uh, we don't know how to make this. 
And, yeah, we don't, mm, yeah. and his dying wish was that the film still get released. So, who knows? oh, for fuck's sake! Sorry, sorry, that's mean. <laughs> that sorry, like I'm. That's mean. But like, there, <laughs> it's kind of like my dying wish is to make this. And he hands in the storyboards, and it's just sticks like scribbles or like a, a fucking Jackson Pollock painting. And they're like, right. absolutely, sir. But what? You know what? It's like trying to ask somebody to type up your memoir and you write in chicken scratches. Actually, that I just realized that's a great concept for a movie where someone gets hired to finish this master director's final work and then he looks at it and it's like he realizes this is going to be a lump of crap and he doesn't know what to do. Like, do I just do what he was going to do or do I change it? Or he realizes it's incomprehensible. Oh, there's... There's definitely something there, damn. Anyways, um, so the, uh, but yeah, it's it's weird that like people, it's like they focus. So many directors focus on dreams. Like, what is Terrence Malick gonna do? Direct a Mission Impossible movie? Like, is he gonna go the exact opposite before he dies? He just does something completely different. Uh, He's gonna do the last Avengers movie. Or is he gonna you bet you bet your him? ass you, you bet your ass Chris Evans and, and Robert Downey Jr. are gonna come back just for the bragging rights to work with Terrence Malick. Oh, of course they would. Yeah, this is God. What what alternate reality? Kevin Feige's masterstroke. I'm gonna get Terrence Malick to direct this. That way, everybody comes back on the cheap. Yeah, they have. They'll do it to be in his movie. That's actually kind of what happened. Well, to summarize, people wonder why Terrence Malick came out with like three ish. <laughs> Not so great movies in between, uh, the um, Tree of Life and Tree um, of Life and uh, a, a, some a hidden life. Is that what it was? A the, life? the one about the Nazi Christian defector, the Nazi the Nazi defector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but in between those, he made like three terrible movies. It's because he was like, I think you told me this, Al. He was like forced to. Uh, for making Tree of Life, they then said, well, you got to make these movies with all these A-list actors go, and you have a very limited amount of time to do them. So now we know what happens when you rush Terrence Malick. Three crapshoots for the most part. <laughs> Although I've heard uh, Knight of Cups is pretty interesting. But anyways, sorry. This is not about Terrence Malick, folks. This is about Miyazaki. So, Same difference. <laughs> sorry. Miyazaki is Terrence Malick meets James Cameron. <laughs> Okay. Anyways, um, are we ready to give our final rating? Do I need to reiterate what it, what the um, options are? Or John, is there anything else you want to add? I I did have uh, a handful of other thoughts. If if yeah. it's all right that yeah, we go please. over a bit, let's go over. Um, yeah. I kind of wanted to get uh, each of your opinions on other films that this reminded you of or bits and pieces that you felt showed up in something else? Well, I think, I think Al kind of, and Al, if you want to jump in further, you can, but I think Al, for his point, saw a lot of Terrence Malick in this. So I think he kind of on his own answered that. Uh, One, one other thing I would say is that, um, and I, I think John, you brought this up. Uh, was that this played like a greatest hits almost um, not in a bad way it's just like the the overall f- story was like oh this is this is like spirited away child goes into this fantastical realm uh, the 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 elements uh, you know like you see Hal's moving castle in here you see uh, 
Nausicaa. You see, you see everything except probably well, you even see bits and pieces of Porco Rosso in here. So there is this thing where I was like, oh, he's kind of just redoing the things he did before, but just in a more abstract, more like detached way, like less Spielberg, more Malick or Lynch, um, which is interesting because I, I really do feel like for, for Miyazaki, it was more about the technique, you know, the process than it was telling the story. Like, like I feel like I feel like he's at that level as an artist where he's like, I'm not here to, to make a story for the masses. I'm here to kind of express myself through art. Like, and, you know, just because of the economics of filmmaking, you know, because Ghibli literally lives or dies on, like, the movies they make because, you know, that's all they do. Yeah, like they, they were more of a, a skeleton production studio up until this because they don't do TV shows and they don't do too many shorts. So it's just the films they make. They they literally live or die off of like, like, like they literally coast off of the success of Miyazaki's filmography that like, like anytime you buy like an official licensed Totoro Ghibli can stay open for like another minute so (laughs) Um, and I I think I think that's kind of why like like I would gamble money that if you asked him like if you asked Miyazaki like hey if if you because remember this this, in Japan this movie had no marketing whatsoever it was just released I would gamble money that if you asked Miyazaki what would have been the perfect version of this movie because he does not consider any of his movies perfect he would have said he probably would have said something like just the images I wanted to make like in an art installation for everyone to see for free. I guarantee you it would have been something like that. And, you know, just because he's like, oh, I guess I have to, I have to tell a story because, you know, the economics of cinema, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I really do feel like he's at that stage in his career where he just wants to be super abstract. Like he just wants to be a visual artist, not necessarily a, a filmmaker. Yeah. Like there's a reason why, like, geniuses like him like like geniuses like george lucas like apparently apparently because we have a we have a college buddy who works at skywalker sound and from what he's hearing those garage movies that uh george lucas have been making are apparently all super brilliant and all super super artsy like (laughs) like 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 apparently they're like if this stuff got released he'd probably win an oscar for best short for best short film but he just is like yeah i just want to make weird stuff in my garage so i think i think miyazaki's kind of in that headspace but because of the reality that ghibli lives or dies by what he does that he's Mm -hmm. like well i I guess i have to i guess i have to make a story to show into cinemas but i'm gonna i'm gonna make it weird guys i'm gonna make it weird and i'm gonna leave i I want people's heads to be scratching Mm -hmm. um but, but got, John, you, or, what what movies did you see in yes, in the yes. in the in the film? Yeah, so I I don't know how much you'll agree with <sighs> this, but uh, I distinctively picked up probably four things. Um, I I got glimpses of what dreams may come. Mm. You know the the Robin yeah, yeah, the Williams, Robin Williams one. Uh, going to heaven and hell and and limbo film. Uh, primarily when he's in the you know the 
the painted uh, fields where all the you know the oil paints and on the flower petals and all the dripping and all that there's there's not a an equivalent scene but there's moments when mahito lands in that other dimension first um that give me that sensation and also when he's going through like the different portions of the rock's inner sanctum with his mother dragging him along that give me that sensation because that would have been you know cuba gooding jr guiding robin williams along in this realm um there's a movie called the secret garden from the mid 90s oh yes sorry Uh, yes that movie begins with a fire killing both parents of this little girl and she is uh shipped off well no i think that the father is alive the mother died because she meets her father again at the end of the film after he gets over his horrific depression Mm -hmm. um I think that's what happens. I haven't seen it in forever, but I, I distinctly remember movie. there is a fire at the beginning. She's stuck in this house uh, with this uh, crooked uh, housekeeper played by Maggie Smith, which is actually the first time I ever saw her in a film. Um, didn't leave me with the best impression because of how terrible that character is. Um, I guess I would have seen her in the Harry Potter films after that. Mm-hmm. but the the house you know there's no there's not really any fantasy in that film except in the way that they shoot different scenes and present uh different moments as you know more carefree and fantastical and uplifting there are a few dream sequences that turn into nightmares but they're very subtle there's nothing otherworldly or strange in the film um then there is a movie by Makoto Shinkai called Children Who Chase Lost Voices. Mm. Now, Al, how how similar would you say that film was to The Boy and the Heron? Because, uh, you know, I was thinking Shinkai as well. But I was thinking more like in, in the sense of like, like a Garden of Words almost because of, of like the the element like mm-hmm. I, I could totally see uh, Miyazaki watching Garden of Words and going like oh I want to do that I want to I want to have like this European aesthetic in the middle of Japan uh, but children who hear lost voices yeah I can totally see that I, I, I really can really really see that especially because it's like it's very minimalist especially oh. since children of lost voices grabs a little of studio ghibli stuff so it's kind well, of this like yeah. secular, it's it's very it's derivative thing. yeah so, like yeah. like like what's the people praise shinkai for being the next miyazaki and then people like deride shinkai for being like a uh basically being a, a bad copy of miyazaki um I, I i disagree with both like i think he's different enough that he isn't Miyazaki in yes. both a good and bad, in, in a both but a good way. But that one's the most like it, like mm-hmm. of his other, like yeah. it, it lo- That feels like a film that someone asked him to do because they wanted it to be more Ghibli-like. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I don't know what uh, prompted him to make that film, but it is visually derivative once you're in Agartha, the land of the dead, especially because I think they borrow the the stylings of 
Nausicaa costumes for certain characters. Mm, I, I, can, I can totally see that. Um, did, did you see uh, Shinkai's movie that came out this year? I, I, I am horrible because I have not even seen your name or Weathering You, Weathering With You, or uh, the latest one. I have, I've not seen all three of them. All right. So, okay. So, your name broke me. And we'll, next time we meet each other, I'll explain to you why. Because I, I don't have the voice power to explain. No, no, no. But, um, but it's actually. Well, that's funny. probably why I've avoided it because I know after seeing all of his other films that these films are just going to really wreak havoc on me. So, I, I need. Uh, a, a turn of expression is I need the spoons to handle this. <laughs> um, I, I will say, I will say that. So, so you have seen garden of words. Yes. And I absolutely adored garden of words. Um, d- despite the controversial nature of the plot, I really did uh, appreciate it. Yeah. So aesthetically garden of words to me, it reminds me the most of his movies in Ghibli. So that's why I was kind of comparing it to that. That being said, uh, I, and I think, see, you would agree that uh, there's specific scenes. We won't explain what because we don't want to spoil it. There are, like, specific sequences in Weathering With You where you're like, oh, okay, Shinkai wants – like, I saw it as an homage to Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, an homage to, like, uh, to like Miyazaki's almost fetishistic obsession with, like, aviation. Because, you know mm, – or, yeah. or with, 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 <laughs> I know with what you're talking about. I know yeah. what you're talking Yes, sorry. Um, so So – it, when you watch that, you'll probably be like, "Oh, Shinkai, we get it. You like Miyazaki, but um, <laughs> but but no, no, to- totally like, totally. You can see Miyazaki. Like I, I, I know Miyazaki keeps up with the animation industry because he's like obsessed. Like like mm-hmm. people think that just because he like threw away all the computers and Studio Ghibli, that he's not like up to date. Like trust me, folks, he knows like." everything there is to know about like all the trends in the animation industry. He just kind of chooses to chooses, be a lot. He chooses not to. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can totally see him being like watching a Shinkai film and being like, Oh, I like that. I, I'll, I'll put that in my next project because mm-hmm. I mean, he admitted that he did that when he was a younger man with like the guys he considered masters in animation during the seventies in Japan. So I don't see why he right. would do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, first of all, Secret Garden nailed on the head. I was also going to say The Little Princess as well. Um, definitely saw some references there uh, in that. That's a film, actually, to re- people don't realize that that's directed by uh, Alfonso Caron. Uh, I knew that. Y- I had a feeling you did. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it's this really sweet children's movie. Uh, that takes place during the war and it's very it's very um what's the word i'm looking for not magical but well it is but um ah damn the it's fantastical in certain ways it's really it's really wonderful and i got that vibe a bit but uh uh secret garden much more so um i'll say it because Y'all haven't said it. Still very much its own movie, but there's some Pan's Labyrinth in this in the sense that it is right. There you wartime, go. Wartime, but with um, fantasy elements. Again, completely different fantasy base, different war, different everything. But whenever you do a movie 
like like this, which I think you're gonna see that more and more. It's almost like a subset of genre now, where it's like fantasy encroaching on something really drastic and sad. Usually war, I guess. Right. You're yep. gonna automatically, and that's not that. This is no one's fault. This isn't even the director's fault. You're gonna automatically compare it to Pan's Labyrinth, because if it's not the first example of it, it's the best example of it, in my opinion. So there's obviously some of that. Now, granted, the only war sequence sort of is like the opening scene, which holy shit, that was amazing. Um, but so yeah, that, my point is yes, like that that that's gonna be in there in some kind of way. Um, I guess the, I saw yeah. The, the the other thing that hit me pretty quickly is um, there's a Ghibli co-production on a video game called Nino Cooney. Oh yes, I've heard about this. Uh that that I think that was 2011 that that I, came out. I remember the review of that basically said we wish this was a movie and not a game is what I heard. Yes, and the sad thing is it did become a movie, but it's a garbage movie. Oh, damn. Um not even the same characters or same realm, but I guess the same general plot. Okay. But the the plot of the game is you're a, a young British boy, probably like uh, ten or eleven years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're driving a like a makeshift car that your friend built, and you're testing it out really late at night. Your mother comes out to find out where you've been, and she catches pneumonia and dies. Oh my God. Uh, in the in the opening cutscenes of the game, and then as your main character is crying a couple of days after the funeral, I think uh, a puppet toy that your mother gave you comes to life, tells you there's another world that uh, uh, doppelgangers of people in this world exist over there, so your mother might also be alive over there. So here's Jeez. a book of spells. Here's a, a tool to draw runes with. Let's go open a gate and I'll take you there. That's that's dark and deep, but okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm just I was looking at I was looking up some of the imagery now, and yeah, the animation parts look great. Um, yeah, I just heard that the game itself is not not the best gameplay. Uh, uh it it's a bit complicated with the turn-based system you got kind of a pokemon uh monster system where they're your allies in the different battles Mm -hmm. i didn't like the turn-based way that it approached it but the sequel is much more my style and i've adored the sequel to death the funny thing though (laughs) is that uh the character that gets isekai'd in the sequel is the president of the united states sure why not? <laughs> Why not? Let's sure. So, um, any other observations or anything else you wanted to bring up on this on the boy? Uh, yeah, the the other really big point that I had is, um, I think, given a few more months, people will eventually figure out what these different visual elements and story points are metaphorically meant to represent but mm-hmm. it needs time to sink in mm-hmm. and i i compare that to the dark souls games 
which are directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki, no relation as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those games, the lore is written into the item descriptions, so only if you collect all of the rare items and common items do you get the whole picture. Jesus. Well, it, then again, it's not even the whole picture because you also have to make uh, you also have to make observations about the enemies, about the NPCs, about the bosses, and about the world setting. Um, and I had a good example here um, from the first Dark Souls. Uh, there's there's a a major character called Seath the Scaleless Dragon who desperately wants to have scales but he was born as an albino smooth skin so uh, in the lore of the game in the first cutscene one of his first acts is he uh, betrays these primordial stone dragons by giving up one of their weaknesses to the ancient gods who destroy the stone dragons and then the opening cutscene you see Seath standing above the corpses of the stone dragons crushing scales in his hand Mm -hmm. but you don't realize the significance of what that actually is until you read item descriptions because he's not crushing them because he wanted them dead he's crushing the scales because he couldn't put the scales on himself it was a fruitless effort betraying all these dragons. Mm. So then you start exploring the game and you start finding uh, weird abominations of uh, dragon halves, zombie dragons, uh, lesser dragons called drakes, mm. and uh, other uh, genetic experiments. And you realize once you get to Seath's uh, lair, which is called the Duke's Archives, that he's been performing genetic experiments and mating experiments between himself and mortal humans to rebirth the dragon uh, lineage. Mm. And that's all written and presented to you visually and through short paragraphs on rings and uh, stone items and uh, weapons and other shit. Hmm. So... In that sense, you're saying that all the hidden there's hidden meaning with the boy and the hair on much in that way, and that we're gonna it's gonna slowly be understood, but it'll take a while. I think so because I I wrote a list here of everything that we see in the film that we don't really know what's going on. Um, we we have a rock that fell from the sky. It landed in the backyard of a fancy estate. A man built a tower around it, despite the rock pushing back and refusing to be bottled up in this tower. Eventually, that rock offers the man who built the tower something he either desired or something he felt was a great calling and uh, granted him powers to build, shape, and control an entire alternate dimension, which is one of hundreds, right? Mm. Uh, there is a hall of numbered doorways that Mahito's mother takes him down to find which door is his and which is hers. Yet, as far as I understand it, the great uncle only controls one of those universes and doesn't have any control over the thousands of others in that hallway. 
So the way that the hallway works and the doors work is part of the stone itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what the birthing room was about and why the uh, stepmother, the, the sister of Mahito's mother, felt drawn towards the rock to give birth to her baby child inside the rock. We do kind of know a little bit about that. We know why she went there, kind of. We, I don't want to get... Because... What, why, why do you... What, what do you, you understand is the reason for that? Because... So, this is, we're getting to spoiler territory at this point, folks. I should say that now. Um, because she was trying to give the granduncle an heir to this world. That's what I thought... The understanding to spare was. Mahito from it. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's what that was because I thought that was like kind of somewhat stated in my, but at least that was my understanding. Is that like she it, was? Well, giving, see that that there you go. That's a, a an understanding of the film after it's you know kind of sunk in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't thought, know if Mia's I don't know if Miyazaki's going to lay it out there for people. So we have to make our own connections in these things. Al, what were you about to say? So, so basically, um, the 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 thing, the only thing that ever gets mentioned was that he he goes like, "Oh, she's here because he wants an heir," and then on a separate time, it goes like, "Oh, he wants the heir to be you." So you're supposed to put two and two together, but it, it's so offhandedly said that you're like. Well, yeah, th- you're like that's kind of important, you know. Th- and then there's other things like, like why the parakeets care so much that uh, that she was in the uh, the birthing room and that Mahito went inside. That that never gets brought up, um, or that never right. gets explained. Like what what connection do they have to the rock and this world, and why were they all brought in anyway? Why did they gain? Uh, human speech and human body shapes yeah like um like a lot of stuff like for instance the fact that you're like okay why did the parakeets like evolve but the 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 pelicans didn't Um, exactly the pelicans didn't and then stuff like okay what like why is there a graveyard here or why why is there a grave here like who is uh the younger version of like this of like one of the the handmaids, right? Uh, the one played by Florence Pugh in the dub. You're like, okay, why is why is she here? Like, there's there's so many things. Like, the only thing that I feel like got explained like in a traditional Miyazaki way was the situation of the of the girl with the fire abilities, which we don't need to reveal who she is, just so we don't spoil everything. But that was the only thing where I was like, okay, at least that's clear. But everything else was like. Um, like the the stuff with the kid, you had to put two and two together because you're like, oh, okay, like that, like any layperson can connect those two things, but everything else, you're just kind of like, what? Because, because I remember, um, because one of my family members saw the movie too, and they were like, why did the pelicans not evolve, but the the parakeets did? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's dream logic right there. Fuck if I know. Like, like, like the 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 in universe reason was that like Miyazaki designed the parakeets and he like had fun. Like, like they were the things he had the most fun designing the the parakeets and the parakeet king. Um, and maybe he just didn't want to do something cartoonish for the pelicans. I don't know. But in terms of the lore yeah. logic. 
as far as I can tell, there isn't one. Um, that also leads into probably my most confusing part that I felt the part I felt found most confusing is if this is one of thousands of dimensions, why are there all of these allusions to this somehow being a land of the dead where there's there's dead in graves that they don't want rising from the graves. There's uh, spirit husks that want to eat meat. You know, they're cutting up a whole <laughs> fish to feed to them. And then you got the Wada Wadas who are supposed to be new souls going into uh, heaven to be birthed as new babies. Like, are these in every dimension or are they just here? Mm. Wow, that's... Sorry, just hearing someone else say that just makes me realize how convoluted it's, parts it's, of this it's, movie it's, are. It's, well, it's not convoluted. Mizaki's okay. just going off of dream logic, which is fine. But then when he's like but saying then like... There's, but there's like a way to do it to still follow through. Well, on if, that, if you're going to do dream logic, you have to go all the way. What you don't do is do dream logic and then like at the, in the last like five minutes of the movie, explain that, oh, by the way, uh, this character made this universe. Because then you're like... Wait, but you just said there's souls in here. How? Yeah. So, so is he yeah. like? Is, is he God? Is he making them souls? Like, is, is God this rando Japanese guy in uh, <laughs> World War Two Japan? If so, we're fucked. Right. <laughs> who who sorry, sounds like Mark Hamill when he speaks English? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, if so if we were having a story that's entirely dream logic, then there would be points that should allude to it not entirely being real after a certain point. Um, and there are moments where Mahito kind of goes unconscious, but you don't know it until he wakes up out of it when he's talking to the heron a couple of times, right? It's like a conversation between him and the heron happens. He opens his eyes a little bit later and did that conversation really happen or, or not? Um, but then you also have all of his other family members and, and the old ladies like seeing the parakeets fly out of the phantom door and turning into tiny parakeets that crap all over his face. So it can't entirely be in this inside this kid's head. And then the whole tower collapses in on itself, like in the ending of, uh, of, uh, uh, what's the, Castle in the sky? Poltergeist. Oh, polter- poltergeist. Yes. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, You're right. It does, uh, does uh, do a poltergeist moment. We've seen a so few there's, poltergeist moments in movies this year, but that's yeah. a lot of thing. So there, there's there's uh, physical evidence of things happening and, and changing in the world around them. It's not all entirely in his head. So what are we supposed to draw from that? If it's not entirely fake, hmm. that and I don't, I don't think we have an answer for you in this I'm, case. I'm almost certain that Miyazaki is going to release like a novelization of this because he he writes novel versions of his movies sometimes. So I would not be surprised if he writes something for this. Maybe they'll do what they did with uh, Spirited Away and do like a live action play version, which did I, I don't think either one of us saw that, but when I heard that was coming out, I was like, that is an interesting choice to to go about and do that. But who knows, maybe that's what we'll see with uh, 
God, I almost said the wind rises. I mean, um, the board and the hair <laughs> on. Um, but is there any any other thoughts we wanted to bring up before we give our review? Not that I'm trying to rush us. I'm just genuinely asking. Mm-hmm. Um, that wraps it up for me. Al, anything before we give our rating? Uh, we can give our rating. All right. Um, I give this a convoluted flush only because it is so gorgeous um and the fir- for the first half of the movie it is very well paced very well constructed and it stays gorgeous throughout the whole movie um yeah for those reasons that like the fact that half the movie story wise is solid and then it still stays beautiful throughout the end visually um uh, and maybe because also it's Miyazaki doing it, so maybe there's some bias there, but I give this a convoluted flush. Uh, Al? Uh, I'm going to give this a Lynchian flush. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the the movie works on a logic that's really, like, inconsistent, and I, I was scratching my head. That being said, like, like I think once... Like, once the, the fantasy element started working in, I was like, oh, okay, this is working off of, like, kind of just show, don't tell type of logic, which, to be fair, a lot of Japanese filmmakers do. It's just that Miyazaki was always had just more Western sensibilities in that regard. I was like, all right, just enjoy what you're looking at. And it, it, it was gorgeous to look at. Um, I feel like if I had seen the dub, the the just the confusing elements that the would have, like, troubled me more just because i i was like well what, what what's what's the narrative here i can tell there's something about grief but there's also something about like creation and like here's the thing it's this won't be considered miyazaki's opus i think most people agree it's either mononoke or spirited away although i think it's porco rosso personally um that being said, like I think we should come to expect that anything else that Miyazaki makes is definitely going to be on the abstract side of things. Uh, and we got to be open to that because I think now he's just he's kind of doing what what Richard Williams obsessed with uh, when he was trying to make the Thief and the Cobbler, where it's like focus on the process, on the technique, on the animation. The story can be what it the story is. And I think. Maybe he I, felt like he's done that enough so he can just do this now. <laughs> yeah, he's basically, I wouldn't be surprised if like when he does make his last film, it's going to be the most gorgeous 2D animation we've ever seen. Or maybe he's just going to throw us all for a loop and do something 3D. Well, he did a short in 3D. Uh, I don't think it was released where anyone in the West can see it, but there was a Caterpillar short he did in 3D. Mm. Well, well, if he whatever he's going to do it's going to be more experimental in terms of narrative and it's just going to be just showcasing the techniques that he's learned throughout his 83 years of living um i that being said so for those who are like ghibli purists this is going to be like pretty inaccessible in the sense of like you're going to be like what's going on what's happening what's the heron's deal um that being said if you kind of realize that this is kind of Miyazaki just experimenting with his paintbrushes you're gonna have a great time and and that's that's kind of the mindset I went into um this I'm probably like I'm probably giving this a higher grade than I would normally grade it just because it was my finally my first Miyazaki experience in the in the theater 
and it was it was it was everything I ever wanted it to be. Um, and that's that's fair. And for the record, I, I'm happy you got that experience. The, and actually, the, the yeah, one yeah, thing yeah. that I'm a little salty about was that my partner compared me. She she literally goes, "Oh my god, those parakeets look exactly like you." And that's she mean. and and she like digged into like uh, uh, social media until she found the screenshot of the particular parakeet she was comparing me to. And then, like, I shared it with my family who, who's seen the movie, and they were all like, oh, my God, she's totally right. Oh. I was like, I was like, really? <laughs> I look like the – do I really look like the parakeet? And my own mother was like, I mean, he, they have your eyes. And I was like <laughs> – Stop. <laughs> I've met your mom. No. She, oh. she, she said that. She said she that. She did not say that. <laughs> I mean, oh. um, for, for the record, I don't see what she's talking about. I, you sent me that picture. I and I'm not just saying this to be nice. I mean, it. <laughs> I don't see it. Okay. Yeah. I don't fucking so, see so, it. So I don't know what my partner, or my mother, or my sisters see. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> my God. They, they all say, "Oh, it's in the eyes." <laughs> it's in the eyes. You start wearing like those colored contacts. Hi guys. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, this is a Lynchian flush. Um, I, I think when you take this Oh, as, David Lynch. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. When you take yeah. this as as a guy just experimenting with his paintbrushes, you know, because he's he's been in the he he's at that age where he's done it all, that now it's just time to shake things up. And some people will like that, some people won't. Um I remember when Sao Takahata, his last few movies, uh had a very experimental animation style, uh Tale of Princess Kaguya and uh and Meet the Hamadas is totally different from the stuff he did like Palm Poco or Grave of the Fireflies. And I think Miyazaki's doing that, but he's like not being so he's not being abstract in the animation, uh, but he's definitely right. being abstract in the narrative and just kind of toying with animation. Cause I don't, has he ever done that frame rate effect in any of his other movies? I, I no, can't recall. Never. never. So, not that I so, can ever no. imagine. And that so. was, he decides to do a whole movie like that. That would be a little intense if he does mm-hmm. that. All right, so that's that's my rating. Yeah, John. Uh, okay, so can you explain the rating and what each of them means sure, in, sure. in your in my your view? approach to it? Sure. Yeah. So number one, one one out of five sucks. So you know it sucks. It's terrible. It's bad. Two out of five, meh. You know it's. You're, you don't like this movie didn't like artistically offend you or like you know upset you but really there's nothing special to it you know there were there's and it can still be bad this movie a meh can still be bad like there's plenty of mess we reviewed this year where like it was like I, I justified a meh where it was like yeah I didn't like it it was bad but this one element made it tolerable a little bit but not really um mm. So things like that, you know, it's sometimes, you know, if you listen to earlier episodes, I'm sure what we thought of as a meh, like we adjusted based on certain factors. And then a movie is like you sat down, you're like, yeah, you made a movie like it's it was <laughs> it's I could see you like that the most. It's like it, it, it was you can't argue anything like truly bad about it, but there's nothing memorable or special or interesting or great about it, really. You know, yeah. there may be some good and bad moments in it, but it's really just overall, <laughs> overall average. Um, a flush. What would you call a movie? Like, what's an example of what's just an a movie? What's an example of a movie? Um, 
Okay. Uh. Hmm. I'm trying to think the last one I did. Um. Have you ever seen any of the Oceans movies? Like Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans uh, 13? I want to say I saw one and three, but I barely remember them. Okay. So that's not a good example then. Um. Because I was going to say Ocean's 12 is a movie. <laughs> That's pushing it. Um, okay. I would say... You know, I could I could call... Um, huh. trying Maybe to think. I'd call Spectre movie. Mm, like, okay. just a movie. Al, Al, what was the last mo- movie rating you gave that you remember on this podcast? That uh, you remember? I th- I am pretty sure um, we gave... The last Marvel movie we reviewed a movie. Okay, you know what? A lot of Marvel movies are movies. That's actually a good yeah. Movie. I think I think we gave Quantumania a movie, or I think I gave it a movie, and C gave it a meh. Yeah, uh, I yeah. was thinking that that That's one a good because I couldn't even. I I literally tried watching uh, Love and Thunder and Quantum Mania. I stopped after 35 minutes so on yeah. both of them. But those are like that's <laughs> things. Those so those might be lower ratings for you. Yeah. And for you, it's possible that if a movie's just a movie, that it's less tolerable for you. You may not like that. You may have oh, issues uh, with that. I think uh, probably we gave Gran Turismo a movie. We did. We did. Uh, we okay, did. I can we, uh, see that. So you're seeing the vibe where it's like, and then a flush is a flush is one of the best hands in poker, but it is not the best hand in poker. Okay. okay, I figured that's what that meant because that yeah. that you could also go the other way and put that at like number five. It's you just could flush it down the toilet. You 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 could, but or you mean at number one, like the worst thing, flushing the toilet. Um, right. So, but a flush is notably like one of the best hands in poker, but it can be beaten. It's very hard to beat it, but it can be beaten. Um, so there are a lot of flushes out there at the end of the day. The yeah, most, like, like I think, are, I think we gave, um, I think you gave Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three a flush. I did, I did, I did give Volume Three a flush. Um, so there, you know what? Honestly, there are a lot of the 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 world of film is made of a ton, made out of a ton of mez movies and flushes. That's what you normally get. It's hard yes. to find a sucks, and it's hard to find a fucks. But and, when you uh, do, we, we, you we don't have a it. we have an extra one that we hardly ever use, and that's fucking sucks. Oh and, yes, <laughs> and, and <laughs> it's so fucking suck it. Fuck. So 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 basically, fucking sucks is like it. Not only is it just so bad that it's offensive, it's so bad that you you would want to delete it from existence. And you want a Superman around the earth. Reversing time. I think I think both both C and I have only ever done that once. Which one was the? No, I think because Little Mermaid. I just said it sucks in the angriest tone imaginable. No, you um, so you said it for I think uh, I, I think you said it for Halloween uh, Halloween ends. I did. I said it fucking sucks. And um. and uh, <laughs> I I said it for uh, Bo is afraid. You did say Bo is afraid fucking Oh, sucks. God, that, that movie made me so mad. Well, because it was three and a half hours and you had to get up and go pee. And you, and you came back no, and no. you're like, what happened? No, no, it wasn't just that. It was basically three and a half hours of a, of a, of a, of a guy with, uh, 
with with uh, an Oedipus complex having a nervous breakdown. And I was like, you can tell this story in 90 minutes. And, and better I, directors have told this story in 90 minutes. And but I, re- I, I remember sorry. you were like, yeah, but there was this one animated element that was so good. I'm like, yeah, that could have been its own thing. It had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And you're like, oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> is that your voice for me? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah so, okay. so, John, that that's kind of our, our rating system. And then Fox is like. We're talking about, like, this is a Can movie. I, here's an example. The Green Knight fucks. That's a good example. Oppenheimer um, fucked mm-hmm. for me. Um, uh, for me, Across the Spider-Verse fucked. Um, there's... And, and it's totally subjective because uh, yeah. sometimes C has said flush and I have said fucked. Or, or, or C has said fucked and I have said flush. Where, like, it fucks. Like, it, it has to speak to you. Right. Yeah. Like, yes. Like, 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 like for reasons I won't get into, I sobbed at the end of Oppenheimer because for reasons, but, um, for like, reasons. Sorry, sorry, but sorry. like, uh, I think like, yes, C had, uh, the, uh, like, what was your most recent fucks? Uh, C it was probably, um, mm. was it talk to me? Yes, it was talk to me. Talk to me, fucks. But here's the thing. I know not everyone's as into horror as I am, so it's not going to hit as hard for some people. But yeah, so so yes, don't don't feel like me, don't feel like or, it has to be like, oh, this is considered one of the best movies of the year. Like maybe right. you don't think it fucks. Like it really does have to speak to you in order for Yeah. Conversely, it also has to really offend you for it to sucks or fucking sucks, but yeah. so, right. so that's kind of how it works. Yeah. The the thing with me is that and I'm, you don't have to keep any of this discussion, this part of the discussion in the episode if you don't want to, because this is just for my benefit. But that's pretty good. We like it. I don't think I. It's been a while since I've watched something and decided to watch it all the way through that I would have said straight up sucks, at least according to the, the way you approach the the ratings um because well, i'll just when, give up when you're in i'll a just movie, toss it out if i may add when you're in a movie theater you're already there so it's like right you, you ain't leaving at that point probably not uh i i am more likely to stick around through the whole thing you know what's funny is the 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 one time i viscerally remember being uncomfortable through half a movie was tron legacy really really like I was so being a fan of the first movie, I was so uncomfortable with what this movie was doing that I couldn't sit still. I was like cringing physically. Interesting. Well, um, no, you've told me this in private. Actually, yeah, you've we've had this yeah. discussion. Yes. Now I'm sure I I would give it a reappraisal today, and I definitely need to do that. Um, which that leads into my feelings about the boy and the heron um i may reappraise this at some point uh, especially if it would be poignant if this is his miyazaki's last film because when i first saw the castle of cagliostro the the loop in the third movie i did not like it at all like i was very disappointed because this is nothing like kiki's delivery service this is nothing like spirited away this uh this doesn't have the artistry or the sensibilities or the charm uh which is shocking because when i rewatched it i realized oh it's all kind of here it's just slightly earlier 
and the opening theme song is actually making me weep. I'm I don't know why I thought so badly of this the first time. What the fuck was wrong with was wrong with me? Um so that did a complete 180. And now it's my favorite movie of all freaking time. Um I don't know if if the boy and the heron will do a, a complete 180 with me, but I I may give it a better appreciation, especially once more people understand and give at least give their theories on what everything represents. But as it stands today, I have to give it a movie. Hmm. Okay. Do you want to have like a uh, so we also do add-ons and that's totally up to you like what like, like kind of what we both just did in this we added like uh like i said it was he said it was a lynchian flush and i said it was a um convoluted flush do you want to like yeah do you want to add anything to your title to- totally up to you totally yeah, up you, to don't you. you don't to. want to yeah. yeah you don't have I, to. I don't know if i can honestly that's, that's totally fair all right totally that's fair totally fair uh, you know, you know, John. Just before we end the podcast, I want to say I I had a very very similar situation with you, but probably not as not a not as like. So basically, when I was a kid, because I was I was I was of the age during the Renaissance period of the Disney animated canon, and right, I can confidently say that the one I did not particularly like watching or rewatching was the Hunchback of Notre Dame, like. Give me, give me Lion King, give me Mulan, give me Hercules, give me uh, Tarzan, but like, or and even the, even Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and 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 Beauty and the yeah. Beast. But it, like, I preferred watching Rescuers Down Under versus The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I just really wasn't into it. Mm-hmm. And then some it took t- me a while to see Notre Dame. I don't even think I was. I want to say I saw it finally when I was 17. Well, it took me the longest time to get around to it. I saw it again, like at 15. And I was like, oh my God, like the music, I was like, this music's better than anything else. And now it's like, so you can tell you it's my favorite of Disney Renaissance. Like, Mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm obsessed with that movie, but I, I, I kind of know where you're coming from, where you're, you just have to, it's either time or it's either like you we we change with age who knows but that that always happens and well it's even funnier because um Cagliostro I think I watched it once I I waited 4 months I don't think it was longer than 4 months watched it again 180 Damn. wow okay. it took it took only like 4 months to turn me around okay it took it took me a decade so <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm the more extreme example in this case. I'm trying to think if that ever happened with me. Um, I think the closest thing that I ever got to that was with a genre that took me a while. As a kid, I was never into. And then once I went through film school, I understand it. I, after film school, I understood its importance. And then later on, I was like, you know what? No, this is good shit. And that was, I, as a kid and as a teenager, stupidly decided I'm going to write off the entire genre of Westerns entirely. That was stupid. This is very dumb. (laughs) But I did. I really did. I think it was just, you know, I was was a space age kid. I loved sci-fi. I loved fantasy. And Westerns just weren't it for me. And I wrote them off entirely. Um, And then in college, in, in film school, you understand, well... 
if it weren't for Westerns, you wouldn't have all the shit you like. And I was like, okay. And right. Then I, and then I saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. My dad showed it to me. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is amazing. I fucking love this. And then I've slowly been working through. Now, there are some Westerns I don't like. But it's like with any genre. There's movies you do and don't like. But for the longest time, I like categorized it as this thing I just don't like. And I've, you know, thankfully have been getting back into it. But I definitely did that for that whole genre. I, I, I can tell see that you're going to be like I don't like any westerns that have John Wayne in it because I, I just feel that you just don't respect the Duke you know? first you're, of all well okay you're, you're going to be like stagecoach ew man who shot liberally valance <laughs> ugh so boring I will say this and don't be mad at me there is one movie so I, there is one movie of his I didn't like and it's a very famous one do you want to guess True Grit no, I, I, I like True Grit. I saw that on the big I screen. I swear was... to God, if you if you say The Searchers, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hurt you. <laughs> well, this has been Alan C. Hooks. Um, we'll, uh, uh, <laughs> John, the ghost of the ghost of John the ghost of John Ford's gonna come and he's gonna he's gonna kill you with his ghost hands. Okay, he's gonna he's gonna kill me with his oh ghost hands. God. I, I I won't get into it, but um, that that's like that's like saying that like I don't like Lawrence of Arabia. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> hey, hold, fucking hold on. You both know that's one of my favorite movies. Shut your fucking. I think out. The Searchers is a better movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. David Lean. David from. Lean literally <laughs> said that if it wasn't for John Ford, he wouldn't have a career. I'm not denying these facts. John Ford's a legend, of course. But <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't right. have said that. <laughs> okay. 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 You might um. have to bleep that out. All right, folks. This is, this is becoming a disaster. Um. So okay. You thank you so much, movie. John, for uh, so for much, being John. here. Yes, thank you. Thank you for witnessing the, our catastrophe of a podcast. Um, well, folks, this has been What Do You Think? I'm Al. And I'm C. And I'm John. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, folks. For the record, you're only guest to like time that out just right, so thank you. Thank you.